This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. Those of us who love this sport and are of a certain age, hint, hint, I don't mean a young age, will likely recognize the name Mark Kramer. A prolific author, he's written thoughtful, incisive tomes devoted to the arcania of handicapping, from fast-track to thoroughbred profits to thoroughbred cycles, to the deeply felt fictional classic, Scared Money. But like a lot of horse players, Mark is most definitely an eclectic sort. Born in Queens, now living in Paris, this world traveler has also written common sense travel journals about destinations across the globe, from Cuba to Bolivia to his beloved Paris. His latest effort, of which you will hear much, is Old Man on a Green Bike, a peon to his later in life adoption of the cycling lifestyle. Normally, I like to go into these interviews with a set plan containing certain goals regarding what I want to discuss. Knowing Mark and his varied interests, while I had a plan, which certainly included racing and handicapping topics, I just decided this conversation was going to flow and go where it would do so, as you will soon hear. In 1973, Princeton economist Burton Malkiel wrote the investing classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I hope you'll enjoy this sometimes random stroll through bicycling, traveling, hiking, and horse playing. And so, without further ado, You can tell from the very beginning of our conversation, Mark must have had a good bike ride that morning. Energized, enthusiastic, we talked about his latest book, The Benefits of Cycling, but also related his love of cycling back to more innocent days as a boy in Queens. So, Mark, you, um, you know, I think I first ran across you. You authored, uh, I consider, kind of a handicapping classic, Scared Money, but you also did some handicapping guides, thoroughbred cycles, value handicapping. But those aren't the only types of books you've written, right? Well, uh, I, I also uh, have written travel books, and uh, but not travel books like uh, five-star hotels. Travel books really getting involved in what the daily life is in 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 the countries or cities. Uh, so a couple of them were a lot of fun. Like Barcelona, turns out to be a, an incredibly fun city. And but to do these, actually, my wife and I we actually lived in some of these cities in some of these countries. And did the books while we were living there. So uh, it, it was like the difference between a foreign correspondent and somebody they send in on the night of the crisis who doesn't know the country. We, we were we were there. So that was that was a lot of fun. And then uh, recently, the the stuff that I really like. I guess uh, the most recent things are the things that uh, become most excited if you are living in the present, which I am, and writing about uh, bicycle adventures and. And bicycle commuting, and, uh, and just uh, the, the bicycle life, and and just 
human energy in general, which is so underrated in our society today. Everybody talks about windmills and and solar and, and whatever kind of energy, but the only renewable energy is human energy. So for for 20 years, I, I've been commuting. I'm doing all my commuting by bicycle, even if it, even if it rains, even if it's uh, cold. And 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 I wrote about that, and I, and also have done a lot of our vacationing has been done on vi- bicycle, also, including visiting racetracks. And so that's that's also in my book. It's called uh, Old Man on a Green Bike. And uh, and and uh, it's basically an adventure book, but it's also environment. There's a message there about how human energy, human energy, the underrated energy, is the only renewable energy. It doesn't depend on mining rare earth in minerals, and uh, and it works. And at the same time, you're getting somewhere with with free energy. You're also improving your health. So. You can't lose. Mark, you were, I would say, lately or drawn later to the bicycling life, correct? You were not uh, always a, a bike rider. I think you were kind of drawn to it really more when you moved to Europe. Is that fair to say? Well, here, here's the thing. And as a child in New York, I actually did errands for my parents by bicycle. And in our neighborhood, when people still played in the streets, uh, we actually had bicycle races in our streets in Queens, and we had people among the kids who were not racing at the moment. They would be guarding the corners to make sure no cars were going going through. And so I did have experience on the bike, but then I was overwhelmed by the um, propaganda that a bicycle is a toy as opposed to being a mode of transport. And when we came to France, especially in, in the year 2000, I learned from uh, other bicycle people i attended some bicycle demonstrations of a of a group that's similar to the critical mass groups in in usa uh who are bicycle advocates and i i went on a ride with them and a guy there he told me uh you know you could you could use the bike and when you go to work and and you'll be much better for it and he sort of convinced me to give it a try and once i once i did try i never looked back because uh, imagine you arrive after getting some exercise coming to work and your mind is so much clearer and that's the same thing for going to the racetrack a bicycle to the racetrack and when i get there i've had that exercise and and somehow it stimulates uh my thinking and i'm able to be sharper so so i found that the bicycle, bicycle commuting is is good in so many different ways and just by chance it happens to be good for the environment uh, but I, I never believe in sacrificing for the environment. I think that it's a win-win situation, and uh, what's good, that's why I, the subtitle of my book is called um, uh, Self, I, I, use the, I purposely use the word self-serving environmentalist, because I don't believe in sacrifice. You don't have to. It's good for yourself, and it's good for everybody else at the same time. Well, I, you know, something you said struck, uh, rang true with me as a as a fairly regular morning exerciser. I notice the difference in myself when I have been able to get up and get a workout in, and, and just as far as how I do everything, you know, throughout the day, versus those days when I'm unable to or I just 
don't because I'm lazy. You know, the endorphins start flowing, the blood is pumping. I think your whole approach to, you know, you described it. I think your whole approach to everything just is more positive, more energetic. Um, everything just feels a little keener. Yeah, and I believe that, that in fact, there has been research, which I cover in, in the book, uh, whereby if a person is a regular bicycler, and you know what, I think this is true for all exercise, but I can't prove it. The research is on cycling. When a person is a regular bicycle, bicycle com- commuter, in the end, uh, you gain one year of life for every, one hour of life for every hour of cycling. And that means that uh, if you do your commute time net instead of gross, your net commute time ends up zero. Of course, that's a statistic. That's a statistic. It's an average. And if you're not in the mean, then you might not be the one that benefits from it. But, uh, but it's a valid statistic. We talked about one of Mark's other books also. I see a common theme developing in some of Mark's non-handicapping writings. Getting exercise, really getting value, without feeling like you have to work out, without having to have a gym membership, and with having fun along the way. So, you know, you've obviously written a lot about uh, bicycling. I got to ask you, um, you know, as we said, not all of your books are racing related, but I was looking at um, your book, Urban Everesting, online. And if you don't want to give away the answer, that's fine. But I am a trivia buff, and I got to take a stab at it if you're all right with it. But one of the things in the liner notes, the American city where the urban hiker can equal the elevation of a Mount Everest climb by simply scaling all the public stairways, and it's not San Francisco. So... Can I can I take a stab at that? Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started thinking about it. If you define the urban area broadly, um, you know, or, or by its actual geography, I guess Los Angeles. I, I go back and forth. Is it Los Angeles or is it Seattle? Um, those are my mm-hmm. two guesses, and and uh, feel free to tell me it's a third one and that I'm completely wrong. Well, you 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 know you got second and third in the trifecta because uh, <laughs> LA comes out in, in second. Uh, I think uh, Seattle and San Francisco are close uh, for third, but the number one city surprise is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, of course, right. The hills around the river. Yes, of course. Well, we have some good friends that live in Pittsburgh, and I, shame on me for not guessing it. When Jim listens to this, he's gonna he's gonna call me right away and say, Bill, how could you not get that? <laughs> Yeah, they have a yearly event, and the the idea of the Everest thing is that you can, if you're in a city that has ups and downs, you can, uh, either with urban stairways or with hills, you can climb your Everest uh, by measuring how many meters or how many feet you're climbing mm-hmm. and climb the same distance as an Everest uh, climber climbs and do it within the same period of time. And you gain an Everest. Of course, it's not cold, not as cold, and uh, the altitude is lower. But I've tried that even in in high altitude city at at, um, at twelve thousand feet above sea level, and it was invigorating. So in Pittsburgh, they actually have people who have who have done an Everest, and they have a, a competition, a yearly competition, where it doesn't really matter if you finish first or finish last, but just doing it of climbing climbing the stairs. All right, it's time to get to some horse racing discussion. I'm always interested in how people come to our sport, their introduction to it, but also what drew them to horse racing as a gambling pursuit, given the time and effort required. I know why I did and what I like about it, and I think there are some common threads among all of us who are serious about this pursuit. I said I expected this to be an eclectic conversation. Along the way, we covered the name of a now long-dead baseball great who, unjustly I might add, 
made what I can only refer to as lonely history. Mark, what was it that first drew you to horse racing way back when? Is it the the, the puzzle, the, the the grandeur, the the majesty? What was it that drew you to, to horse racing? Uh, I think if uh, tell, tell me if I, if I'm wrong about this, but most of the people who are asked this question say that it's somebody in their family and. Yeah. I had two people. Is that true? Yeah, it is for me. I know everybody that I talked to. So someone else took them there and, and got them hooked. I, I agree. Well, uh, my grandfather uh, in Schenectady, New York, where I was born, I would visit him. And Friday nights, when he got home from, from work, he'd be pouring over the harness races at Saratoga Harness. And he and he started to take me there. And that sort of... Uh, and and. I think not only going to the races itself, but actually see him studying and learning that hey, uh, this is something that you can do well if you if you put in the effort. So uh, I think the combination of the studying and the and the spectacle. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting what you say about the studying. I, I think all of us who love horse racing um, despair, at least in this country, that it's declining. Uh, popularity versus other sports, and I think um, the way it suffers versus casino gambling, and I think it's the very studying that's required, um, the effort that's required to put in that is what makes it uh, more difficult to attract, like, you know, the casino crowd and things like that, because they, they most of them just aren't that interested in the work that it takes to get to, you know, those those value bombs that we all we all like to hit mm-hmm. uh i i don't want to feel uh speak as if i'm negative on on the human species but uh because i do i am a people know me as being an optimist but um i think that the, for some reason the majority of human beings uh, do not want to make the effort and do not find pleasure in making the effort they want something uh, that comes quickly and satisfies an urge. And if I could give you an example that your horse racing readers may not even be aware of, uh, but the person who, who started making the study of past performances uh, the challenge and, and the joy that it is was Tom Ainsley uh, with original books, right? Well, I, he was a friend of mine. And in later life, because I didn't know him when I was reading his books, his name, his real name is Dick Carter. And Ainsley, like so many other people in, in horse race handicapping who are students of the game, uh, Dick Carter uh, had done so many other things with his life. And you may be surprised to know that he even wrote a book with Kurt Flood, the former St. Louis Cardinal center fielder about uh, free agency and because Kurt Flood was the first player to take a risk and sue Major League Baseball for uh, to be a free agent. He lost his suit before the Supreme Court. Yeah, it went to the Supreme Court. So um, Dick Carter uh, actually was the co-author of that book. His picture appears on the back cover and people don't know that. And what I'm trying to say here is that when you find a studious handicapper, you're going to find a person who is probably interested in a lot of other things at the same time. I could say the same for Barry Meadow and other other people that you know about. 
As long as I've played this game, I've maintained that the biggest barrier to entry is the entry point itself, the ancient, runic characters that constitute past performance running lines. Along the way, we talked about the differences in how past performances are presented in this country versus Europe. Those differences aside, I found it interesting that they still tend to lead one back to some eternal truths. <laughs> I remember, I've told this story before on the podcast, but uh, taking the train out to Belmont to um, the day that Smarty Jones unfortunately lost the Triple Crown, and my, my now son-in-law um, was with us, and uh, I'm trying to explain to him and my son... Yeah, it's my son-in-law says now son-in-law says to me, uh, so holds out the race for and says, so explain this thing to me. And I, I start with maiden special weight, you know, and and in thirty seconds I can see his eyes glaze over. He's like, I, I don't, I don't know what the heck is going on here, and I don't, I don't blame him. It's 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 hard. Uh, it, that's the starting point, right? Uh, you know, if you will, the past performance lines, and those are, those are like hieroglyphics. I, I, I know that you taught. A handicapping class um, at college in your past. How did you kind of break that ice with people to get them over that initial hump, or did you did you attack it from another direction? Well, in fact, uh, to, to convince the uh, the two schools where I did this, uh, a university and a community college, uh, to convince them to even offer the course, I explained to them that horse race handicappers are like people who. Uh, would have been physicists studying uh, atomic particles if they hadn't been studying the racing form, and that this is a, a valid intellectual activity. And uh, they 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 uh, accepted that, and so uh, that's how it got started. And then I didn't present myself as being a guru, uh, uh, not at all. I had uh, guest speakers coming to, the, to those classes and. Uh, we were. It was a very horizontal type of learning situation, and there were sometimes students in that class who who knew more than I did, or who were who were sharper thinkers than I was. So we learned from each other. So it turned out that we had a nice crowd of people. We saw each other regularly at Santa Anita or at Hollywood Park, and um, sometimes we put in a group bet, and it was a a fun thing. Uh, but these people were serious handicappers, and. I remember very fondly those classes. Mark, one of the things that I, I always strikes me when you look at, um, you know, particularly in our Breeders' Cup time, when we all have to, at least over here, have to become uh, conversant in the European way of presenting the races. Um, how do you, you know, in the U.S., and I consider myself in this crowd too, a very data-driven, um, and the time form or the European description tend to be much more of the narrative kind of, approach. How do you use those in your handicapping? It strikes me that you must have to know a lot more about class and and kind of see the races, watch the races, see replays to be able to succeed in 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 that type of environment with that type of approach. Well, the narrative approach uh is is really helpful because you can pick out things. Of course, the, the the daily racing form has short comments, and they they get better all the time. Uh, but the narrative pr approach it gives you a chance to uh, to visualize. It presents an image that numbers. For some people, the numbers are an image. For me, the narrative is even better than the numbers. And uh, especially if you have, if you're looking for something. And my feeling with the uh, European turf races 
is to find horses that actually have speed. They ha- they have early speed. Not necessarily that they're going to take a lead, but they have tactical speed. And a lot of people uh, have the the mythology is that that European they just wait till the last minute and then they give their last run. But that's not true. At least not true anymore. And so and especially for European uh, shippers who are coming to the United States, a lot of times. Let's say that you do have a front runner in Europe who's going against the the uh, the universal bias there, and he ships to the United States. He's suddenly going uh, from a place that was against his culture to a place that's for his culture, and so he may not even be the front runner in the American race, uh, but he can he can do much better. And so it's it's good to find these European shippers who have enough early speed. Uh, that maybe they underperformed in Europe, but with the Lasix or or with the new environment, they're going to uh, they're going to thrive. And so the speed factor in the narrative, I look for uh, the mentions of speed here and there. I've always maintained that to get people into our sport, one thing you have to do is to get them out to the track. It seems obvious, but there's something about the time-honored process of walkover to paddock to saddling to jockey's entrance to leg up to post parade to warm ups to race that subtly yet stirringly communicates the long history and pageantry of our sport. And, of course, there's nothing like having the winner whilst among a fervent crowd of attendees. But how do we get those attendees back to the track when there is so much competition for the American consumer's dollar? Is it, among other things, as simple as making it easy to get them physically to the track in the first place? How often do you get out to the races over there, Mark? Well, there are periods of time when I I go almost every day. Uh, When the weather is nice and I have my bike... It's an excuse to take a bike ride, and uh, I get two for one there. Um, and there are other uh, long periods uh, where where I don't go, and and like during the pandemic, I haven't haven't gone. Uh, although the tracks were open, but I just uh, didn't want to take any chance. So it it depends on the season, and the weather, and uh, uh, but I, I like to go out there. I I like to be at the track in in person. And, I, and for me also, the spectacle counts. So if, I, if I'm online too often, that, that online stuff is not the same. It's like reading a book with real paper compared to reading a Kindle book. I like to be there, and I like the spec- spectacle. And, um, and especially, if I may add, it's a, I'm being long-winded here, but um, I love racing at small country tracks, no matter where. Could be USA, could be France. And I love to go to those small tracks in the country. It's great ambiance, great atmosphere, and uh, good betting also. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, and I do want to get to the, the different tracks that you've visited. But one of my fears in the pandemic environment here, at least over here in the U.S., is that it already was, has become in a lot of ways what Harvey Pack, um, I heard referred to one time as a studio sport. Um, the, the on-track attendance, unless it was like Saratoga or Keeneland or, you know, the California tracks or Gulfstream in the winter is, was not as important um, as just the, the online presence. I remember being at uh, Belmont one Wednesday afternoon. I had had a business meeting out in the middle of the island and uh, got out early and my flight was later. So I stopped at Belmont on the way this, uh, Wednesday afternoon. This is probably 15 years ago now. And uh, as I like to tell people, you could have shot a rifle through the grandstand and not hit anybody. Um, 
but my fear is in the pandemic environment that these tracks, you know, they're in, at least in the U.S., their handle has held up. Um, and are they going to kind of, I don't know if they can really dissuade on-site attendance, but are they going to value on-site attendance even less and less? And is it really going to become much more of like the type of studio sport that Harvey described? Well, uh, maybe I'm uh, a reactionary in this sense because I think that some of the things in the past, if you could find a way of bringing them back, uh, you could get more people out to the track. And I think that uh, in, in my days in New York City, going to Aqueduct, say, there was a bus that took you there. And everybody was a horse player. It was a special bus for horse players. And it was great service. And if they had that... Uh, because the problem is that the distances, it's so easy to play from your house. You don't have to drive a long distance. But if there's a bus and, and you can study on the bus, so you're not wasting your time uh, behind a wheel. You can study the races on the bus. So there are ways of getting people out there. And then I think in the, in the small tracks, I'm not sure. I haven't been to the fairs recently. But in France, the small tracks on a Saturday and Sunday, uh, are usually ha- usually are full. They have great attendance because it's the only game in town. They're not competing like a little, little beautiful town in Normandy, like Evre, which is just so pretty. That town, uh, the track is about three or four miles outside of the town. Okay. Uh, it's surrounded by forests. A train goes through there. It's a beautiful place, and they get full full attendance. They're not competing with NFL or with, uh, with any kind of glitzy spectacles in their town. And so this is the place to be. We spent some time discussing the regulatory environment as it relates to racing in Europe versus the U.S., the impacts of the, kind word, medication regimes in our country, and how the highly spaced racing efforts and early retirements that characterize much of our sport in this country have worked to its detriment. My own passion for this sport was reawakened after a period of some dormancy when I attended the harness races at the Red Mile in Lexington back in the mid-1980s. Then and now, the standard-bred breed races with a frequency that's not that far off from the frequency with which thoroughbreds used to race. Those days are gone forever, but I am left to wonder from time to time how much different the following of our sport would be if we were to return to those days. Mark, what's the situation uh, over in Europe? Because I'm not familiar, and I really don't know, with um, drugs and and, and, and horses. Because here... You know, there are those trainers whose numbers, you know, kind of skyrocket into the 20, 30 percent, you know, win category at certain places. And and, in some cases, I think it's uh, merely that they are getting the best horses. But in other places, you start to think to yourself, how does a horse go from one barn to another barn um, and improve so dramatically? What's the state of like? drug testing over there and, 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 and surveillance and supervision? Well, in France, uh, they are ruthless about that. First of all, uh, Lasix, is, there is no, no such thing as Lasix here. Okay. And uh, they're ruthless about any, anybody caught using, using drugs with their horses. Uh, so, and I would say there are some, some of the French trainers and stables are, are purists about this. And if you notice, Andre Fabre, who's made a lot of enemies because he doesn't—he's not such a sociable person. But when he brings a horse to the Breeders' Cup, he never adds Lasix to that horse, and he's had 
pretty good winners at the Breeders' Cup. So, uh, so um, I think that there is a feeling here. And for your your listeners, you can check online. Just uh, go to Gina Rarick, R-A-R-I-C-K. She's the only American trainer here in France. She's a friend of mine, and I love her stable. And she uh, loves racing without without any uh, without any Lasix or any type of, uh, of uh, race day medication. Now, do the horses run as often over there? Uh, you know, I mean, here in the U.S., it's it gets a little frustrating with. Um, First of all, the trainers seem to kind of follow the sheets, and so they're looking for bounce patterns and spacing the races. You know, you don't see any more the old days where a secretariat ran 11 times as a two-year-old. Uh, every every two weeks, basically, um, he ran. Uh, do, do, do they follow the same pattern these days as far as spacing races out over there? Cause I, yeah, I think, for the— Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. For the, for the higher-class horses, definitely— and also, I think that um, this is one reason why, if you look at the attendance at harness races in France compared to thoroughbreds, you're going to see more people going to the harness races, and you're going to see larger handle in general for the harness races because the uh, the trotters uh, race every week or two, you know, and so you you get to know them. They even have some horses have their fan clubs. You get to know them and. It's more anonymous for, for horses when they only race five or six times a year. So that um, I think that, that that could be one reason why uh, there's not so much attendance at thoroughbred races because you can't really get to know a horse. No, you can't. And I, I think it's even changed dramatically even inside the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, I think back to in the early 2000s, there was a horse named Country B Gold that ran over in, in, in ran down on the New York circuit. And, and he raced, you know, a couple times a month. And, and, and to your point, you know, that's a, that's a name that I still remember to this day, um, him progressing through his conditions. And, you know, it was easy to become a fan of his. And, and you know, you brought up uh, harness racing. That's really um, how I came back to the sport after um in my young adulthood um and you're right that's one of the things you, you know i used to go to the when i lived in kentucky we my brother and i would be at the red mile down in lexington fairly frequently and uh you know you'd see the same horses you know week after week and you know you can start to get a feel for them and and uh uh i i agree with you. i think that's one of the things that has inhibited the sport's popularity here uh both at the claiming level and at the at the higher levels, especially at the higher levels now, some of them have success as a two-year-old and they're retired to uh, to stud. It's just uh, it's it's mm-hmm. breeding. I, I understand why, and and I have good friends that are you know involved in the breeding game, and they understand why it's important and why you know they want to be in it. At the same time, I think it's it's caused the sport to suffer a little bit over here too when when these the horses are retired so early. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's sad to see them go. Especially, uh, I, I I loved a horse in, at Sportsman's Park in Chicago, named Maxwell G, who raced until he was fourteen, and um, uh, we would go out there just to see him. He'd come from way behind, either he'd, he'd get up to third or he or, or he'd win, and uh, uh, this brings people to the track, including yours truly. Yeah, yeah. 
As a 14-year-old, wow, 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 that's incredible. Well, some horses just have a nose for the wire, right? I mean, that's. Uh, it sounds like Maxwell G was one of those. Unfortunately, we very rarely see the likes of Country B Gold or Maxwell G anymore. How much better for our sport would it be if we did? Next week, we'll dig into some handicapping discussion while revisiting Hollywood Park, talking about how one can support the important thoroughbred aftercare programs that are out there and the perils and travails of public handicapping.